Hey everyone, episode six of Chase the Peace. Welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, election season is just around the corner and it's pretty much my least favorite season that there is. It's a time in America when we become more tribal than in any other time. Fortunately, uh, I have a dear friend named Sarah Anderson who is an expert in navigating what she calls the space between us and she wrote a book about it called The Space Between Us, How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. This is an amazing read. She writes this about the book, for those who are looking to build a bridge with the people politics and religion has isolated them from, for those who won't settle for the growing space between us and who believe there's a better way, this book is for you. Sarah is a native of the greater DC area and a current resident of the Bible Belt. She spent her entire life learning to navigate the complicated and emotional conversations around politics and religion. She's a writer and speaker and currently lives in Roswell, Georgia with her husband, my dear friend Rodney, and her two boys. Uh, let's dive into the conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the Chase the Peace podcast. I mean this sincerely. I could not be more honored that you're here. You are a phenomenal talent. This book, we're going to talk about your book, The Space Between Us, is so challenging in so many good ways. I can't wait to unpack why you wrote it, what you've learned, kind of what's happened since, and then connect your ideas on politics and, and shared space and anxiety and mental health. And, you know, so um, we'll connect some dots along the way because I have a tendency to avoid it altogether because of what it does to my, to my stress and anxiety, which isn't, isn't a great alternative. Before we dive into the book, we want to get to know Sarah. Tell us about Sarah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is so fun to do it with you and to, um, after having been friends for 10 years to kind of interact in this professional, more professional way is a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So I live in Roswell, uh, Georgia and got um, married to Rodney and two boys, 14 and almost 12. For the past 15 years, I kind of worked in the church and nonprofit ministry world and did a lot of writing and editing um, for teenagers and for church leaders. And then um, most recently have just started doing a lot of freelancing writing and, and contractual writing projects and editing, but also trying to lean more into this space of this, these topics of navigating spaces between us, especially as we head into an election year. And what I think a lot of us hoped would change after 2020, realizing, oh, maybe it hasn't changed at all. And if anything, it's gotten worse. And so how do we um, continue to move forward and humane and honoring and, and dignifying ways. Um, so that's kind of been my desire right now professionally is just trying to lean into that space. This was probably stirring for a long time, you know, before you actually sat down and put pen to paper. Yes. Um, but what made you decide finally, hey, I need to write this? Yeah, well, I'll give you a little bit of background to my family. Um, so I, I grew up just um, outside Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia, and I was raised in a very political family. My parents met working at the Republican National Committee. My dad worked in the Reagan administration as undersecretary of education, chief domestic officer to the president. Growing up politics, which is kind of always um, in our blood, it was in the conversations we had around 
every dinner table conversation revolved around it in some form or fashion. I'm the only member of my family that has since left DC and gotten out of the bubble. I, my brother and my sister were still very much involved in it. My brother worked for a vice president. My sister worked for various senators and congressmen. So it is just the air we breathe. For most of my life, it was fine because we all kind of relatively landed on the same page. But as I got a little bit older, kind of left DC, left that bubble, um, just had some different life experiences and exposure to different stuff. I noticed that the things I had grown up thinking and believing politically, and in some cases, religiously, um, started to veer a little bit from what my family had grown up thinking. And avoiding the, co the topic of politics wasn't really an option because of how much our lives revolved around it as adults still. And so for me, we just had to figure out how do we continue to relate to one another and enjoy one another's company when these really big differences started to emerge because avoiding it wasn't on the table. Um, we still really enjoyed each other as people. We didn't want to not talk and not connect. And so we just had to kind of fail forward in whatever way we could. And I just thought, you know, we weren't experts by any sense um, of the word, but I wanted to kind of share my journey, my family's journey and how we kind of tried to figure this out as we went along and not always doing it well, but also um, just kind of what I've learned in, along the way. And I think what had felt very personal to me and our tensions and our struggles prior to 2016, 2016 brought to the forefront that every family is struggling with this. This isn't just my family and everybody's trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we continue to gather for Thanksgiving dinner? How do we continue to get together for the holidays and talk about these very real complicated topics? I don't want to write these people out of my life, but I don't understand them right now. And so I just wanted to write a book that kind of detailed our experience. And um, again, not as an expert, but I think people feel, I know I feel encouraged when I feel like there's a co-journeyer on these kinds of things. So I just wanted to share, this is my experience. This is my journey. Maybe it's helpful to you in some way. Since you've put this out into the world, which was how many years ago at this Four point? Four years ago, this September. What's, what's happened in your life and career since you put this out into the world? Well, it's interesting. I felt like writing it was part just, you know, I want to write a book and I want to get this out in the world, but also very therapeutic for me personally to kind of huh. write this narrative around my experience and my family and, and where I saw myself going. Um, and what I think the biggest surprise was I really enjoy talking about this and I really enjoy, I think I'm probably more like you at wanting to avoid some of the, these complicated conversations. And I really enjoyed figuring out how to lean into them in a healthy way instead. And so part of what that looks like in the year since is the year after in 2021, I started pursuing my master's in theology and culture and um, with an emphasis on peace and reconciliation studies and conflict resolution and, and just really learning like, what does this look like, not just politically, but interacting with the faith that I have, how does um, peacemaking and conflict resolution, how is that fundamental to the faith that I have really? So that's been probably a really exciting thing that I did not expect to happen as a result. It just kind of ignited this fire in me a little bit. But I, would, I think probably the most rewarding piece has been hearing from families, people in my parents' generation or that age bracket, and then also hearing from people in my generation and saying how much it's helped 
kind of cross these divides in their families and just hearing these individual stories of like, oh, I get my kid now more because of how this plays out. Or I feel like we don't have to avoid this conversation anymore. And it's not necessarily this kind of larger ripple effect as much as it is. I can connect with my daughter again. And this, that wasn't on the table a few years ago. Yeah. And even, you know, we talked a little bit about the, there's a liturgy at the end of the book, the number of messages I get at Thanksgiving where people are like, we pray this together as a family every year now, because we're surrounded by one another and differences that we hold, but we're still finding a way to circle around the table and, and share that moment together. That means the most to me is just knowing that we're, we're all figuring this out together, that we're not, none of us have figured it out, but we're, we're making strides and that matters. You said something about studying peace and reconciliation, which politics to me has this like chaos and discord. I love the study of peace and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? What is your earliest political memory? Well, I would say, okay, probably, I don't know if this is my earliest, but it's the most vivid political memory I have. And I was young. I think I was seven at the time. Uh, my dad was in the Reagan White House. My brother was two. My sister was 10. And we were, uh, my dad had somehow arranged for us to get a meeting in the Oval Office to meet President Reagan. For some wow. reason, we started the day at school. My mom was just going to check us out. So we packed our stuff, our fancy clothes to change into in the car as we were driving into the city. Um, so my mom picked us up, checked us out, and we were probably crossing the river into the city, basically the point of no return when I realized I hadn't packed my shoes. And so <laughs> I ended up meeting the president in my plaid green and red, probably a Christmas dress and my white sneakers and hot pink shoelaces. And so you get an official portrait with the president and that portrait is still up in our house with me looking very embarrassed. And then along those same lines, my brother had some kind of intestinal something happen. I don't remember. <laughs> oh my gosh, that doesn't sound great. Where the noise came from. <laughs> but it, I just remember something came out of him that was so loud and my parents were mortified. But luckily, I think it was, I think the president was deaf in his left ear and we happened to be standing to his left. So he did not hear anything, but that story has gone down in dour lore of- Oh my gosh. I think my dad decided to keep a more separate work and home life. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe this wasn't a good idea after all. Stay home. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> Reading your book again, it challenges me in so many different ways. One of the things you talk about in the early chapters is this fighting for connection and how even though in your own family, there's a lot of differing views on different people, topics, yeah. but you make this quote that I just think is so powerful. I don't do this very well because I avoid politics you know, with my family, which isn't healthy, but you say connection is worth fighting for at all costs. We as a society are really getting this wrong. We're fighting to be right rather than fighting for each other and to be kind. And this is your space. What do we need to change? Yeah. Yeah. I think you, I think you totally nailed it. That connection has gone by the wayside and being right has really become the forefront of our goal, really, what we're trying to do. And so I think when, when that goal shifts, the ability to connect is compromised, right? When becoming right becomes the point 
connecting is a lot harder to do. And so if my goal is to prove my rightness, then it makes sense that my goal is also to prove your wrongness. It's I'm communicating a sense of superiority over you, right? I'm confident on where I've landed. It's you who needs to change. But when the goal is connection, I think the posture is completely different. It's curiosity. It's understanding. It's starting from a place of humility. Now it's not, I'm trying to convince you of anything. I'm trying to learn from you. And I'm trying to look for commonalities and not inconsistencies in what we think. So that being said, I don't think it's wrong to think you're right about something. I think that's really important that we have these convictions and beliefs about things. But when we're always operating, believing that we're right about everything, it changes the way we see ourselves. And it changes the way that we see somebody else. Suddenly, it's really easy to morph into this space of, I don't think you're just holding a wrong belief. I think you're a wrong person. I think you're a bad person for thinking this way. And it's really easy to go from there, I think, into scapegoating mode. Now, anything that goes wrong, well, that's because of this person. That's because of this group. That's because of the way that they believe. And now I'm operating from a place of self-righteousness and superiority, and there's no room for self-reflection. There's no room for um, being introspective about anything. It's immediately this group, this party, this type of person is responsible for everything bad that's happening. But when I focus on connection, you're a human being first. You aren't the sum of your beliefs. You aren't the sum of your voting record or your past. You're a human. And connection, I think, just really values the humanity in somebody else more than anything else. And that's hard because being right really elevates our ego and it feels really good. But fighting for connection is, I think, essentially laying down our ego. It's it's choosing vulnerability first. Um, it's saying, what could we have in common and, and what can I learn from you instead of what do I have to prove? So your question of what do we need we to change, I think we need to change our filter for engagement. Um, right. I've kind of seen it um, explained this way, that there's different ways of communicating that, especially when it comes to things that we disagree with. Um, there's the debate kind of way of communicating, there's discussion, and then there's dialogue. And when we're talking about a debate, my goal is, I, I value being right more than anything else. I value winning, might makes right. Um, if I can just put together the right combination of words and the right emotion and the right tone, I can prove you wrong. So my objective is to demonstrate my power over you, right? So I think a lot of us are heading into conversations around politics in debate mode. Um, discussion mode is going to be more cerebral. It's not necessarily as emotional, but it's, I still think if I present you with the right amount of facts or the right kind of facts, I can get you to change your minds. This is just me. This is just a rational conversation. If you see this, you will end up thinking the way that I think. Dialogue, I think is, is the ultimate goal because dialogue is saying, this is human to human. This is a posture, again, curiosity and humility. I'm not trying to prove anything to you. I'm trying to learn from you. So what is your story? What are your experiences that got you to land where you did? Because it's possible that if I had your experiences and I had your story, I might think the same way. So what can I learn from you that got you to land where you did? And I think when you value that connection piece and head into it with a dialogue as the objective, you're going to win every time, right? Because you're walking away with this kind of human interaction that debate will never get for you. That's really helpful for me. And, I, you know, I don't engage in this a ton yeah. because I don't want to be perceived as self-righteous, you know? Um Early in your book, you talk about we live on the. This is a quote directly from your book. This is this is me. We live on the edge and in constant tension of what to say and what not to say. And this is like connecting a mental health component. Like this can produce stress and anxiety in in me 
because I, I don't want to lose influence or a friend over something I say that could be perceived in any number of ways. I know you're passionate about creating space for a healthy conversation and disagreement. How do we create space to accomplish this in our lives and not live in this tension of like, oh, I don't know what, I don't know what to say because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. The biggest thing we can do is fundamentally change our approach um, to how we see tension and how we see difference. So I think if we see differences, um, which are going to lead to tension, right? Anytime that there's something different between you and me, there's going to be a tension there. If we begin to change the way we see tension as it's not always a bad thing and it's not always something to avoid, but it's something that we can make peace with. And that even resolving the tension isn't even necessarily the goal, but understanding the tension and where it comes from is more of the goal. So I think we need to begin to ask ourselves, what about tension makes us uncomfortable? What makes us not want to kind of live with it? And if we see the difference as bad intention as something to resolve or go away, then chances are I'm going to head into a conversation with somebody I think differently from with the objective to change their mind. And nine times out of 10, I'm going to leave frustrated because that's out of my pay grade. It's out of everybody's pay grade. We can't, if we're trying to change somebody's mind, we are going to be mad almost every single time. And it changes our approach. It changes everything. So I think we've got to move from that, move from change and instead move to, again, this idea of understanding and creating space for the tense conversations and, and learning the difference between tension and conflict and really unhealthy war, right? A war with somebody. Um, Peter Rollins is this author I love, and he's this philosopher. And he has this, um, he says this, I don't know if it was a book or a podcast, but he said, war isn't conflict. War is the inability to handle conflict. And I think that's really powerful, right? And he was somebody, he grew up in Northern Ireland at the height of the troubles, right? So he lived in a incubator for tension and war and conflict and saw firsthand how avoiding conflict led to a rise in what ultimately ended up becoming the troubles and the war. So conflict wow. is what happens when we engage difference. It doesn't mean it has to be, or that it always is angry or hostile. So wow. conflict's okay. It's an invitation to lean into the difference Conflict only becomes threatening and can lead to a war when we treat it as a zero-sum game. Like there has to be a winner in this. Somebody's got to come out on top. For war, there is a, it is a zero-sum game. There is a winner and there is a loser. But conflict doesn't have to be that way. So I think we tend to shy away from it because we think there has to be a winner in it. Um, but again, the difference in handling conflict or becoming an unresolvable conflict is when we, when we can begin to say instead, help me understand right? Help me understand. I don't have anything to prove. I'm here to learn from you. And so when we take winning off the table. I think that immediately deflates the anxiety, right? I think the mm -hmm. anxiety is, am I going to be able to prove my point? Am I going to look stupid in saying this? Am I going to, you know, whatever. But if the, if the objective is to understand, I think that deflates any kind of anxiety. And I think it disarms the person on the other side. Because even if they come to it trying to prove something to us or to win an argument, if we immediately respond with like, yeah, that's a great point. Help me understand how you landed there. Instead of immediately trying to refute it, I think the yeah. temperature just goes down. And I think that we, that's not, not everybody goes into a conversation that way. But if we can lead that way in a conversation, I think it changes the tone completely. I think it's really disarming. And I think just learning to be able to say in these conversations, I may be wrong. This is what I think, but I may, I may have gotten this wrong. It's really the ability to have intellectual humility about these things. I listened to a TED talk with a woman, her name's Catherine Schultz. And she, she uh, talks about, she's addressing the audience and she says, what does it feel like to be wrong? 
And people are throwing out answers like it's humiliating, it's embarrassing. It stops them. And she says, no, that's what it feels like when you know you're wrong. To be wrong without knowing it feels like being right. And that was such a light bulb for me. None of us are holding wrong positions on purpose. All of us are holding our positions with the deep seated belief that they are right. So if we can begin to go into conversations being like, I do feel this way, but my feelings may be lying to me. So I need to be open to what somebody else has to say and their experiences and their story and say, I may be wrong going into the conversation leading with that, I think just disarms everybody and changes the tone of everything. One of the things I shared with you as we were kind of talking about having this conversation was this um, article by Brett Q. Ford. Um, he wrote an article for the American Psychological Association. And, you know, it's this study about politics and mm -hmm. its connection with mental health. This is, I'm going to quote a couple of things here and then I have a question for you. So one of his quotes, he says, modern politics its daily controversies, incivility, and ineptitude puts a regular emotional burden. Protecting oneself from the stress of politics might help promote well-being, but it also comes at a cost to staying engaged and active mm -hmm. in democracy. And so that leads me to like, in your opinion, what is, what's the balance? Because I know that stress for me leads to anxiety, which can lead to a bad night's sleep, which, you know, just all of these everything's connected. I know that I need to stay engaged. Mm -hmm. So what's the balance? Well, I, I think you're nailing it in the question, right? There is a balance. And I think that the challenge in, in an article like that is it can lead us to think it's either one extreme or the other. It's like you're either all in or you've completely checked out. Recognizing what that balance is, is going to be personal and individual, paying attention to your own kind of mental health cues, your own physical cues. I, I know when I'm going down a rabbit hole politically, whether it's a website, whether it's a tuning into news channel, I can feel it in my body when I'm like, oh, this just turned a corner. This went from being informed to now I'm like catastrophizing, right? So I think learning to pay attention to our own personal cues really helps. But I think to your point, we're all kind of wired one way or the other. I think we're going to be wired to want to be all in, have the news on 24 hours a day or to completely check out. And I think we've got to have a rational response to both of those things. So I think of our tendency is to be all in on the news all the time, to be informed. I think that stems from wanting to curb our anxiety because we think the more information we have, the more able we will be able to to handle the stress that that the politics kind of creates in us but i think it's important to know that this 24-hour news cycle that we're living in this is very new we are the first generation that has lived with this in our entire lifetimes so that 1980 was when cnn was created right so this is a oh. very new phenomenon and even oh. when it was created people didn't really watch it all the time it wasn't until i read this recently it wasn't until the oj simpson trial that people really started tuning in to cnn as like all the time to see like what's happening wow. track it that was the mid 90s that was 30 years ago so to realize most of human history has lived without access to news 24 hours a day and they've been fine so we've got to recognize being like tuned into it all the time like that's not normal that's not typical and just pull ourselves back a little bit and realize that it's okay to get some distance from that. I think the other thing, if that's our tendency to kind of want to get sucked into it, is to realize that even if our objective in watching the news and staying informed about politics is, if that's our goal, that's not necessarily the primary goal of the media outlets. That fundamentally, a news outlet and a media outlet is a business. And if it's a business, they want to keep you on their channel. They want to keep you on your website as long as possible. 
And they do that by creating fear, by creating anxiety, by tapping into the emotions that make us go, well, what's going to happen next? What do I do? How's this going to play out? That's how they keep you on. And so even if they are saying they're a news outlet and they are communicating the news to a degree, there's also the secondary motive of I've got to get viewers and I got to keep them here. So I think just paying attention and knowing that's what an objective is and to spin the politics in a certain way to get us to stay and to really tap into the anxiety and the fear that we feel as people. So for me, I try to find, I'm never watching a news channel 24 hours a day, but if I'm turning one on, I'm going to switch to another one in five to 10 minutes and see what they're saying about the same story. One that's kind of, so there's a weighted response. Um, I follow an app or I follow on Instagram um, a, a handle called Ground News. I love them because what they'll do is they'll tell you a story that's breaking. And then at the bottom, they'll tell you, these are how many news outlets based on the left who, who are covering it. These are how many news outlets on the right are covering it. This is a blind spot for the right because they're not covering it. And then it'll show you or blind spot for the left. And then they'll show you these are the headlines and how the right is portraying it. These are the headlines and how the left is portraying it. And so you really get, oh, this is not unbiased. Like there is always going to be a leaning one way or the other. And so when I can see directly in front of me, okay, this is how it's being portrayed to this audience. This is how it's being portrayed to this audience. There's somewhere in the middle that's probably more accurate representation and is probably a lot less fear-mongering when I can find right. what that middle ground is. So paying attention to that, I think helps a lot. We don't need to be tuned in all the time because I think the sound bites that we find on the news the, the ticker across the bottom, these are not, there's no nuance in that. And nuance, I think, is where we're going to be able to kind of dispel the anxiety a little bit. Um, I think if our tendency is to put our head in the sand, which I think that's where I lean to, is to be like, just shut it all down. That's not necessarily helpful either. Because you and I know this. I mean, I've struggled with anxiety. We know that the feelings that we're avoiding by not watching the news or not being informed or in any area, it's like whack-a-mole. It's going to come up somewhere else. Right. So sure. it's not that by ignoring it, we're actually dealing with anything. We're prolonging um, the actual oh. dealing with any of that anxiety. And so I was listening to um, this podcast several weeks ago with Anderson Cooper, interestingly enough, but he was talking about grief and his guest that he had on. And he said something in relation to grief that I think actually works in this context. He said, people think that the goal in life is to be happy, but the goal isn't to be happy. It's to be fully alive. And I oh. think in this context, we think the goal is to be comfortable. We don't want to face the difficulty that kind of comes to the surface when we see really difficult things happening in the news and really discouraging things. But if our goal is to be fully human, it means we've got to live in the awareness that these things are happening, not necessarily wallowing and not just getting stuck in them and, and getting stuck in this kind of spiral, but we've got to be able to acknowledge that both exist. There's a really difficult reality out there and there's also really beautiful things too. And so recognizing that we've, we've got to hold this tension, the goal cannot be to stay comfortable when it comes to what's happening politically and in the news. We haven't talked about this yet. Your, your dad <laughs> ran for president. That's a huge deal. So you talked about during that season, this is your quote, I learned firsthand the danger of identifying people primarily by their politics and what we justify doing to one another when we dissent in our views. So so I, I'm curious about the campaign. That's a huge, that's just a massive part of your story. Um, but why do you think we justify such bad behavior towards people who don't think like us? 
Yeah. Well, um, my dad announced that he was running for, so it was for the 2000 election. It was for the election that George W. Bush ended up getting the nomination for, for his first term. So um, my dad announced in 1999 in April of my senior year, which I don't recommend for anybody having a parent. <laughs> <laughs> Less than ideal. <laughs> and especially as a middle child, when you're like, hold on, am I getting the shaft even more? Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was interesting. Yeah. It was just kind of this whirlwind at the time, my brother. So if I was a senior, my brother would have been in maybe seventh grade. So he was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, my sister was a senior in college and was majoring in political science and was like also the coolest thing ever. So she was volunteering on this campaign. Um, and I was the only one that kind of felt more hesitant just because of how disruptive it was to my senior year, but then even more so based off of that, the quote that you just read, the more I experienced kind of the underbelly of politics, because up until that point, you know, we were living in this Republican bubble and whether it wasn't explicitly stated this way, but it was like, we're the good guys. This is the good team. We're all together. We've got, we're against this, these ideas, this party, this, whatever. It was like, you kind of circle your wagons around your people, but in a primary you're it's, infighting, right? It's all Republicans running for the same nomination. And so all of that energy and hostility that had been directed to a completely different group, that was in group. And the thing that was so hard for me to wrap my brain around was that we were having these interactions with people that I would have thought were on our team. And now all of a sudden it was directed against us. And I think I just realized, oh gosh, this isn't like, we're the same people. They're the same people. But we think differently about this one particular issue when it comes, you know, whatever it is, economically, foreign policy, whatever it is. And we've justified that difference. Um, we've used that difference to justify really poor treatment of one another. And so you see this, you know, people that you loved and had dinner with and all of a sudden you're going, wait, are we like not cool anymore? Like, are we enemies? Are we just supposed to pretend this didn't happen when we did, do settle on a nomination and just go back to business as usual? But also as a daughter watching your dad go through these kinds of attacks is really unsettling. And I think it just brought to light that, oh, there isn't one good team and one bad team. Like we're all pretty jacked up in this process. And the things that we're able to justify for the sake of power and the sake of influence and winning is not great. And so I think we we tend to to try to get away with a lot more because of that. But I think a lot of that stems when I think of, you know, it brought it, it brought its light when it came to the Republican party specifically for me, but the more distance I got, the more I was like, well, this is everybody. Like we're all looking for reasons to other one another, right? We're all looking for an excuse to distance ourselves from people who aren't quite like us. And I think that's a human fundamental human attribute is to look for a way to make us versus them. But I think if we're not willing to come to terms with that inside of us, we're going to destroy a democracy, but we're also going to destroy the humanity in ourselves. The longer we play into this us versus them narrative, we're not making, we're not only making the them dehumanized, we're dehumanizing ourselves. We're making ourselves more um, belief-based than we are human beings. And I think that's, that's really important. we got to pay attention that that sameness, not making somebody more like me is not the goal. Um, we've got to start enjoying the particularities about one another and seeing how our differences aren't just liabilities. They're an invitation to see what we're lacking in our own experience and our own stories. So it's, it's got to, we've got to make peace with the existence of the other, but also learning from what the other might have to show us. Um, 
Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has this phrase, the dignity of difference. And I think that's really important that the idea isn't just this kind of kumbaya, like let's just glaze over all the things that are different. We're all fundamentally the same. It's all, it's fine. His idea is no, we are fundamentally different, but that doesn't have to be a bad thing. So how can we use our particularities and our differences as good things and and learning opportunities that there are things that you might have different from me that I'm not trying to make you like me, but I need to know that you bring something to the table that I can't because of your experience. So how can I learn from that? And how does that end up making our democracy a better place and a safer place for everybody? You know, not just making us all the same, but making us individual and dignified inner individual differences. In your book, you talk about this identity crisis that, yeah, you call it in your book, the quarter life crisis. I think it was uh, the way you described it. And I'll let you describe it in a second, but as you know, you kind of grew up, you had this bubble of conservative Christian yeah. and then you had this quarter life crisis, you know, moving into this next phase of my life. Is this actually what I'm taking with me? Can you share a bit about that season? Yeah. I think quarter life crises are a real thing, or maybe my, my therapist was just <laughs> making me feel better about myself. But from what I understand, it, it really is this age where you're in your mid twenties, your brain stops developing. So you're like officially an adult, your frontal lobe is done. All these external things are kind of happening where you're individuating as a person from your family of origin. You're, you know, for me personally, I just gotten married. We owned a house. I was paying for my own car insurance. Like there are all these things that are kind of like, oh, I'm full on an adult at this point. Like this is like real. And it was like, what was happening externally I couldn't not have that the same kind of conversations internally. So it's like, oh, I'm presenting as an adult. What does it look like to kind of move and to individuate internally from my family of origin? The only way I can think to describe it is uh, it's reaching the stage where you can be reflective enough about the story you inherited from your family and asking, is that the story I want to continue to hold on proactively? Like I choose that story for myself or is there something else out there and proactively? proactively moving into that. But I think there's something in your mid twenties that makes you begin to ask the questions. This was the story I was given. Is this the story I'm going to continue to live out of? And I think for a lot of people we do. And I think in a lot of ways I still did, but it just is that it, you've got to be able to ask the question. If you're yeah. not, I think there's just this, maybe that's what becomes a midlife crisis later, but at some point, like the ground shakes a little bit beneath you and you either lean into it and kind of I'm like, okay, what am I doing with this, with whatever faith, politics, whatever was passed down to me, or you ignore it and it ends up bubbling up later or somewhere else. So I think, I think for me, it's, we've got to be able to mat be mature enough to ask ourselves, um, what was the story I was given? And then can I see there are other stories out there and not just that they exist, but could there be a better one that I'm not yet a part of? And, and, and what do I do to begin to listen to those? So I think the the crisis for me was I'd grown up thinking the narrative I was a part of was the best one, maybe the only one, and anything different from that was a threat. And so it was beginning to ask the question, what if I was wrong? What if there are other narratives that are better and I have something to learn from? But that's really destabilizing when you've grown your whole life and not to any fault of our parents. I mean, they're automatically we're given a narrative. Every parent passes down a narrative. My kids are going to have the same experience that I had when they're, when they hit their twenties, are they going to want to live with the same faith and politics that we passed down? So I think it's just part of this coming of age um, experience, but it's, it is destabilizing, but I think only if you let it, I think it's really freeing in a lot of ways too. 
because I know like how big a deal politics is in your family, I have to ask you about this piece about the 2008 election because you wrote about it. You did not vote. No. And in the book, you talk about calling your mom and telling her and she cried. <laughs> Just tell us a little bit about that. I laughed out loud when I read that. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that was full on. I was in therapy at that time. And it was, I remember being like, I don't think I can vote. I felt like I was separating myself out from this kind of like Republican narrative. And I was like, I don't think I can say I'm a Democrat either. But like, I just, it felt like that was my final stage in individuating was being like, I am not going to vote for the party you think I should vote for. And to communicate that to them. Maybe she cried because it was about politics. But also, I think there was this kind of like, oh, she's kind of her own person now. We talked about politics a certain way growing up, but her, me not voting is my way of saying, that's not really who I am anymore. It was, I know, because people were like, why did you tell her? Like, just don't vote and don't think. <laughs> but I just, I felt like it was a way for me to kind of make peace with, this is me kind of doing my own thing. And, and I want to be honest with you. I want, mm-hmm. I want you to know that this is, I don't want to live my whole life trying to hide this kind of journey that I'm on and and I could come back around. But for right now, I just need you to know that I'm having these bigger conversations internally, externally, I'm meeting people, I'm having life experiences that are kind of like, wait, this is more complicated than I thought. And I just want you to know that I'm feeling this way, but also I respect you enough to let you know I'm feeling this way and I don't want it to affect what we've got. Really where you and I started talking about like getting together and recording this episode was that we're heading into election season, mm-hmm. which I just, I despise, you <laughs> know, and I, and I think there's probably a lot of people that feel that way. I think just because it's been, you know, when you look back to 2020 and 2016, like it was just so unhealthy. I personally didn't get on Facebook for two years. Mm. after the 2016 um, election. Can you give us some quick tips, like heading into election season, just, you know, how to approach this with that curiosity, Mm -hmm. you know, humility, thinking about connection and kindness rather than self-righteousness and being right. Yeah. Just a kind of side note. I think part of the problem is I think we're fatigued. I think we're election fatigued because, because of the 24 hour news cycle, I think, it felt like we never left an election season. As soon as there was a new administration, we started talking about, okay, well, what's it going to be in four years from now? What, like, so I think that's part, that is part of the problem. I think the tone is a problem, but also removing yourself from Facebook, like you said, like maybe that's not a bad thing. Paying attention to kind of like what we were saying earlier, those, those physical cues, the mental cues that kind of gear us up for this next season, I think is really important. But I would say for quick tips, I would say don't attend every argument you are invited to. And I think there's going to be a lot of arguments that are initiated in this coming year. And I think recognizing when someone wants to engage in a debate and when someone wants to engage in a dialogue, right? Like we talked about earlier of saying, just because someone's trying to like egg you on and what's trying to kind of wants to get you kind of like riled up, whether that's social media, whether that's in person, you are not required to participate in every disagreement. And I think sometimes just being able to say, like, I'm not really ready to talk about this. Or like, let's talk about this at a different time or just scrolling past whatever it is on social media that's kind of getting us fired up. Just recognizing our own personal limits. We don't need to attend, defend, stand up for every single engagement on, on social media. I think I would also say honor everybody's starting place in this. I think sometimes our goal can be if I could just get people to see it the way that I do or approach this the way that I do, then that's a win. 
But when I think of the best example I can think of of this, you know, my dad, he was like involved in the young Republicans in high school. I mean, like politics is in his blood. He's been doing this for 60 plus years since high school. And he has been fighting. I mean, that and that is the language that he uses when it comes to talking about different issues, fighting for certain ideals and values and, and what that looks like. And so conversations can get tense when it talks about things that I disagree with. A win for us in our dialogue is I will never forget it. I think it was the 2016 election when I was like, I can't vote a particular way. And he asked me the question, who from the Democrats interest you? And it was just total curiosity. I mean, there was no judgment behind it. It was like, well, tell me a little bit about like, who's, who are you drawn to? And it was like, it, it shifted the tone of our relationship, honestly. And I know that feels dumb, but it, it was such a big deal for us because it went from, I'm trying to change your mind. I'm trying to get you to see what I've been fighting for for 60 years. I'm trying to get you to understand to, okay, I can't convince you. So what about the other party? interest you? And what are you drawn to? And it was a way to say, I want to learn more about you as a person. And so the starting place for him was, no, I'm not going to get him to change his mind on any particular issue, but I can acknowledge the step he took. And in that moment, it went from being a debate to being a dialogue. And that matters. So I think when we honor our starting, the starting point of somebody else we're in conversation with, it's saying, you're so far down this lane. I'm not going to get you here, but if I can get you one step closer to a posture of curiosity um, and to seeing things differently, that's a win, right? So we just, we've got to be able to acknowledge growth wherever that happens to be on the spectrum, the steps that we take. And I think the last thing that we could really do is is combat the narratives that were handed about different groups and different parties. Another way of another word for that's essentialism is when we see groups of people um, as one monolith. It's like this group, this party, whatever it is, they're all this way. And so we've got to fight these kinds of broad stroke narratives about different groups of people and really lean into the particularities and get to know the individuals that make up these groups. I think of, um, there's this group called the parent circle. They um, ex have existed for long before October 7th happened with um, Hamas attacking Israel, but it's a group made up of Israel and Palestinian parents. And all of them have lost children at the hands of Palestinian and Israelis and terrorist attacks. And it is a group, they coexist together and they just exist to learn from one another. They share their grief. You know, they have every reason to hate the other side. And instead they're using it as a way to lean into their shared grief and to learn from one another. And I think those are the groups that are going to change the world. And those are the groups that are going to usher in peace in these kinds of environments, because we, we've got to stop painting these broad stroke narratives. And the higher up you get in government and the higher up you get in power, the easier it is to speak in narratives and monoliths. It's these on the ground groups, it's these on the ground people where you lean into the individuals and you think, oh, you aren't just a nameless, faceless identity. You're a human being. It's not as it's it's not as black and white as I think it is. Like there's more complexity and there's more nuance. And yes, that complicates things, but what a relief, right? To know that there's just there's so much to learn. And and I that's the kind of world I want to live in. I don't want to live in a world with these binaries that makes it good, bad, and cut and dry all the time. Like there's just so much nuance to discover. And I think there's something really beautiful about leaning into that. So I would say fight, fight the narratives about about different groups. I can't think of a better way to close our time 
together than for you to to read your liturgy. For anyone listening, this Sarah and Rodney have read this and prayed this prayer over us as we've shared meals together. So it's really meaningful um, to to me. I would just love it if you would kind of pray this prayer and, and read this over us as we close our time together. I'd love to. This is called a liturgy for the space between us. And I, I wrote it in 2016. And it's something that our family has just um, read every Thanksgiving since. For family near and peaceable, Lord, we give thanks. For family far and conflicted, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones easy to love, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones we fight to love, Lord, we give thanks. For people who see as we see, Lord, we give thanks. For people we don't understand, Lord, we give thanks. For people who don't understand us, Lord, we give thanks. For easy conversation and expressed affection, Lord, we give thanks. For gentle discord in our discourse, Lord, we give thanks. For unity, not sameness, Lord, we give thanks. For charity in all things, Lord, we give thanks. For a world that reflects your goodness, Lord, we give thanks. For humankind that bears your image, Lord, we give thanks. For a day when we'll delight in our differences and not just tolerate them. For a gathering of every tribe and every tongue. For a table and a feast today, anticipating the one we'll enjoy with you someday. Lord, we give thanks. Amen.